Welcome to Belfast City Vineyard, where we are pursuing formation in the presence of Jesus, community gathered around Him, and the impact He empowers us to bring in our families, city, and the world. The following message was given at one of our Sunday services. For more information, visit our website at BelfastCityVineyard.com. Again, good morning and welcome to BCV. My name is Alan, part of the team here. And here we go again on the seemingly broken record that is Mark's gospel. If you haven't got the theme just yet, Mark is laser beam focused on bringing his readers, which is you and I, to one place. He is constantly holding before us, this is who Jesus is. This is what he has come to do. Now you decide, how are you going to respond? And it's it's almost relentless in his pursuit of this point. And yet, when you step back and you think about it, it's also utterly unsurprising. It's exactly the point of writing a gospel, an account of the good news of Jesus. He's writing it so that his readers might believe. And every time we read it, if we're willing to allow the Holy Spirit to to speak to us and lead us and guide us, we are brought to a decision point. We're brought to this point of how will we respond this time, today, to the truth of who Jesus is. It's not a one-time deal. It's a constant invitation into more. So don't let over-familiarity lead you into apathy. Wherever you might be on your journey, you know, thinking about and exploring Jesus for the very first time or decades into following him or or anywhere in between, these stories always demand a response. Let me just pray for us. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and our minds afresh? Would you challenge us and would you call us to respond to these passages today? Come have your way in us. Amen. So let's read a a fairly tricky passage in Mark chapter 3 and then we'll try and unpack it a little bit. In this short account, Mark applies, you know, uh, a favorite writing technique of his by creating this kind of little sandwich, if you like, the opening and the closing verses 20 to 21 and 31 to 35 kind of go together like the, like the slices of bread on the outside. And then this filling in the middle is some dense teaching, drawing out the, the kind of main thrust of the passage. So let's read it together. This is Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the preachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. 
In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Just a, a nice little light passage for a summer's day, right? There's, there's a lot going on in this encounter. Lots of really good and interesting and provoking things to sit with and to chew over and to allow the Holy Spirit just to really speak to us about. And I highly recommend doing that at some stage today or this week to, to take some time to just sit in this passage. We won't have time to mine the depths of all of it together, but hopefully I can give some handles to grab hold of. But before we get into the detail, just step back and look at the story as a whole for a moment. In this really short encounter, we see three possible responses to that question of who is Jesus. You know, his family think he is out of his mind. The religious leaders think he is in league with the devil. And Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Just just seeing that from a bird's eye view made me think straight away of a quote from a good Belfast boy. C.S. Lewis in in his book Mere Christianity um, says something really akin to this. And it's a bit long, but it's really good, so I'm going to share it with us. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I don't know about you But to me, it seems almost like Mr. Lewis was pondering this passage in Mark when he wrote this. It just seems to fit so much with what we're looking at today. 
Straight away in our passage, we see that his family, or, or more accurately, his own people, which could be close family, as in the end of the passage, or could simply be his closest followers or friends or actually anyone related to him. But regardless, we see that he, they think he's gone mad. He's proclaiming himself to be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the very Son of God, and they think he's lost his marbles. He's just the next in a long line of self-proclaimed saviors of Israel, and there have been a lot before, and he's going to get himself in trouble. They've come to seize him or to take charge of him for his own protection. And then we have the scribes or teachers of the law, and they're not just your, your common or garden religious leaders. They are the bigwigs. They've come the whole way down from Jerusalem to see what this upstart is all about. And they don't think he's mad. It's much worse than that. They think he is evil. They think he is an agent of Beelzebub or the devil himself. And notice how even Jesus' strongest opponents, those who ultimately plot and instigate his killing, they don't doubt his power. They aren't saying this is all a load of nonsense and he's mad. They aren't saying it's just hype in the crowd. They aren't saying he isn't healing people or he isn't setting people free from demonic control and he isn't performing miracles. They are actually affirming that he's doing all that. But they're putting the source of his power down to Satan and not God. For those of us who are unsure today what we think of these stories that we read in the Bible, unsure of what we think about Jesus, that should give us pause for thought. Outside of Christianity, history attests to the reality that a man called Jesus of Nazareth lived in this time, in this region, and had a profound impact. Historians pretty much unanimously agree on that. And here we have those most vehemently opposed to him, those most desperate to discredit him, affirming his power affirming that he actually did the kind of things that we read about him doing in the Bible. They who would be most likely you know, want to reduce him to, to simply another human teacher, another human upstart, aren't doing that. It takes a pretty big leap then for us to do it. Just a thought. And Jesus here then exposes the sheer lunacy of their thinking. If I'm working with the devil, why in the world would I be driving him out? Why would I be undoing the pain and the brokenness and the evil in the world if that's what his plan is to cause? You know, a kingdom or a house or a family that's at war with itself wouldn't last very long and wouldn't get very far. It just doesn't make any sense. And it's sadly actually one of the tactics of the enemy against the church throughout the whole of history. If he can get us fighting against each other, arguing over the tiniest details of theology or differences of opinion, then we are of no use in bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the world around us and how often we fall for it. A family locked in infighting can't possibly hope to achieve flourishing and blessing and the devil driving himself out undoing his own efforts makes no sense it's utterly illogical no 
Jesus is very clear which team he's on. He's not mad. He's not bad. And he tells this little mini parable of a strong man being bound before you can plunder his house. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But but very clearly here, Jesus is referring to Satan. And he isn't belittling him or painting a, a caricature of a cartoon devil with horns and a pitchfork that we could, you know, just ignore as, as senseless. He's saying he has real power to do damage. He has a kingdom that is at work in this world. The prince of demons is indeed a strong man. And iskuros, iskiru means mighty or, or strong. And so he's calling him a mighty one, a strong warrior, iskuros, one with real Power. And Jesus viewed the devil as very much real and powerful and active at work, ruling in the sin and the brokenness and the chaos of the world around him. We would do well, yes, not to fear the devil, but also not to underestimate that we are in a fight, that we have an enemy who has real power. But Jesus, in one short story, tells us who he is and what he's come to do. And this isn't the first time Mark has used this word, mighty. In his intro in chapter 1, he told us that John's message was of one coming, that's Jesus, who was mightier, eskuteros. He's already told us that Jesus is the one who can bind the strong man, the one mightier than the mighty one. Satan has power, but Jesus has much more and he's come to plunder Satan's house, to take back this world from the control of sin and chaos and brokenness and pain. And to his Jewish listeners, this would have instantly called to mind the words of the prophets. They knew in this one line that he was claiming to be the sent one of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 24. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, I'm your saviour, your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. It's right there, plain as day. Mark is saying this is who Jesus is. Saviour, redeemer, mighty one, iskuros, one come to bind up the enemy and to call this world back into life, to take the captives and set them free, to take the plunder and restore it to the world that God made it to be. He isn't mad and he isn't bad. He isn't a good teacher with nice morals and he isn't a fictional character of myth and legend. Mark gives us no room for those things. He is the son of God, the savior of the world, the mighty one. How will you respond? How will you respond today? And respond we must. Every moment, every encounter demands a response. And Mark gives us some stark warnings here woven into this story. 
Firstly, he warns those accusing him of being in league with the devil. Look at verses 28 and 30. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Again, this is a tricky passage. And one that can be taken out of context and and can cause fear and confusion. What if I accidentally commit a sin that I can't be forgiven for? But as always, we need to look at what Mark and primarily what Jesus was trying to tell us. In the context, he is speaking directly to these teachers of the law who are blaspheming the Spirit. And blaspheming here literally means refusing to acknowledge what is good. They're calling what is good evil. And they are denying God's saving, rescuing, forgiving work through his Holy Spirit. And again, the words of Isaiah the prophet spring to mind in chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Jesus is challenging the arrogance and the self-importance of the religious leaders of his day. They believe themselves to be the top authority, the, the holders of truth. They have so much believed their own hype that they can't see the wonder of God at work right in front of their eyes. And so they call it evil. And we might not think that that applies to us. You know, I would never ever say that Jesus was in league with the devil. That's just not something we do. But actually, at the root of it, they're really just committing the original sin that is so subtly tempting to all of us. That, that desire to decide for ourselves what is good and true and what is evil and false. That desire to sit in the place of God, to be in control, to decide things for ourselves. If there is a more defining summary of the moment that we live in, I'm not sure what it is. We hold high our own self-importance, our own ability, nay, even our own right to decide what is true for ourselves, to decide what is good for ourselves. Nobody else gets to do it. We get to decide those things. And that is the original sin that we want to be in the place of God. And if you have time, just go and read the whole of that chapter of Isaiah 5. It is scarily postmodern and it's 3,000 years old, but it defines our moment and our culture so well. And so to blaspheme the Spirit is to refuse to call what God calls good, good. And to instead place ourselves at the center of the story as the ultimate authority. James Edwards writes this, In this respect, wickedness poses a lesser problem to the grace of God than do pride and self-righteousness. Wickedness poses a lesser problem to the grace of God than do pride and self-righteousness.
That should cause us to pause for just a moment. Jesus says every sin, every error, every rebellious act and every unwitting failure can be forgiven if we will acknowledge it and seek forgiveness. There is nothing that you can do or have done that puts you outside of the reach of the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God if you'll receive it, if you'll acknowledge your need for him. This is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does, convicting us, showing us our sin and our failure and inviting us to receive forgiveness. But if we refuse to see it, if we refuse to acknowledge our brokenness, if we insist upon saying that actually evil is good and good is evil, then by definition, we can't be forgiven. It isn't a punishment but an unavoidable consequence. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that you're in a room with one exit. There's just one door in this room and a fire breaks out. There's a a means of escape, a, a means of saving, if you like. But if you decide it in your mind, I don't really trust that door. I think it's actually a trap. It's not a real door at all. Instead, I'm gonna draw myself a door on the wall and then I'm going to escape through that. Well, one, you'd be an idiot. And two, you pretty quickly be no more. Refusing to trust the door would mean there's no possible means of escape for you. It isn't a punishment. It's simply the only possible consequence of your choice. But at any point, if you change your mind, the door is still there and escape simply requires that change of thinking. Does that make sense? You with me? Something similar is at work here. The unforgivable sin isn't something we can accidentally do and then be damned for all eternity. It's a constant refusal of the prompting and the calling of the Holy Spirit to allow him to be our means of rescue. There is only one way. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. We all need forgiveness. We all need rescued. And we can't earn that. And we can't achieve that in our own strength. It is offered freely to us as a gift from God. Our work through his Holy Spirit, his experienced presence with us, But it is the only way. And if we disregard his way, decide that we want to be in control, we want to call good evil and evil good, we're writing ourselves off from the only way to life. And this isn't a punishment, but a warning to be aware of the consequences of our choices and an invitation to receive the free gift of standing with God. If we ignore that invitation, if we turn it down, there is no other way. Again, Edward's writing puts it this way. Anyone who's worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. 
So why are you in danger of putting too much weight on your own understanding, of ignoring the nudging of God through your conscience and instead saying, I know best. I want to be in control. I'll decide for myself what's good and what's true. It's a dangerous place to stand. But in this little passage, in these few words, there's also the deeply encouraging call that no one is beyond the reach of God. There is forgiveness available, no matter how bad you think you are, if we'll simply come and receive it. The door's always open, but we must choose to walk through it. Secondly, then, there's a warning for those who assume themselves to be on the inside. In verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers show up and they call for him to come out. And the word gets passed through the crowd and Jesus simply responds, Who are my mother and brothers? And he's not trying to insult or belittle his family. It might look that way. That's not what he's doing. But he is clearly saying a response to him is demanded from us all. Jesus' hearers must ponder its implication for them. Those who assume that they are close to Jesus should think again. Those who assume that they are far from him should take hope. The question disquiets the comfortable and encourages the dejected. Jesus is so subversive. I think we miss that sometimes. He is so subversive with a simple question. He throws everything upside down. His family, by means of birth, believe they have a claim on him, that he should respond to their wishes. But in this upside down world of the kingdom of God, Jesus instead says, those who have accepted his claim on their lives are in fact his family. Jesus isn't ruling his mother or his brothers out, but he isn't ruling them in simply by means of earthly bond or status. Now, by the time Mark was writing this, Jesus' brother James was the head of the church in Jerusalem, and his mother Mary was highly honored across the whole church. But even they didn't have a fast track into the family of God. As one commentator puts it, there is no proxy membership in the kingdom of God. You know, being born into a Christian home, growing up in a church, being baptized or confirmed, serving the poor, giving away our wealth and our riches, you know, or not smoking or drinking or swearing or or whatever thing you think might make God like you a little bit more. That isn't the measure. If Mary and James come under the who is my family question, if they needed to intentionally respond to the call of Jesus on their lives, then most certainly you and I do too. You see, Jesus didn't come to take up your cause or to take up my cause. He isn't your genie savior there to help you out when life gets tough. We don't have a claim on him. 
He came on mission and calls us to lay down our rights, to lay down our agendas, to surrender whatever it is we think makes us good enough or worthy enough or entitled to something and to instead pick up his cause. Mary and James had no claim on Jesus. They had to surrender to his claim on their lives to become part of God's family and so to us and again it's not a one-time deal some of us have been doing this thing so long that we believe we're entitled to some special treatment from Jesus it's time to think again where might we need to lay down our expectations of Jesus joining our agenda and instead pick up his what are you miffed at you know, miffed with God about because you felt entitled or you felt owed something that you didn't get from him. I don't ask that lightly or tritely. It's a real deal. I've been there. It's a very easy mindset to slip into. You know, I'm owed something by God. You know, Mary was chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah. She was highly favored above all women. No doubt she could have expected that Jesus would respond when she called. And yet she too had to recognize the agenda was not hers, but his. The mission was his and she was invited to come play a part. And that is true for all of us. There's a wide open invitation to join him, to be family with him. Look at verse 33 to 35 again. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Sidebar. Notice how only his mothers and brother his mother and brothers are calling out, but Jesus includes the word sister in his response. He never misses a chance to empower the women around him, never misses an opportunity to undo the broken lie that men are more important. Oh church, how we would do well to walk in the way of Jesus. Sisters equally welcomed into the family, equally empowered, equally called to the front line of battle. Don't let anyone tell you something different from what Jesus says. Rant over. So how do we respond to this mighty one of God? By becoming part of his family and entering into his mission and firstly as Jen so excellently reminded us last week that looks like being with him sitting at his feet being in his presence learning from him the unforced rhythms of grace choosing to exclude other options choosing to ignore the other calls and claims on our lives on our time on our energy and our resources to be with him And then from that place, doing the will of God. And what is that? Well, he's already told us. He's come to plunder the strong man's house. And we're to join in the mission. And quickly as we close, this is an often misunderstood passage. Jesus isn't saying we need to come up on some mountaintop over Belfast and challenge the territorial spirits to some big dramatic showdown and bind them all up before we can see the kingdom come. Jesus is saying he came to bind 
Satan. He came to do what humanity couldn't do for itself. He, on the cross, made sure of Satan's ultimate defeat and showed us how to moment by moment, day by day, keep lessening his power, loosening his grip on our lives and instead side with Jesus in seeing the order of heaven crash into the chaos of this world. And how did Jesus do that? Not with some big almighty power struggle, but by resisting temptation and by laying down his life for the sake of others. It's as simple and as difficult as that. Every time we give in to temptation, every time we step outside of God's best for our lives, we give the enemy a little more power over us, a little more control, and we release a little more brokenness into this world. But every time we resist, every time we choose to trust in God's way over our own disordered desires, we loosen the grip of evil on our hearts. We, as it were, bind the strong man. We reduce his power and his control in this world. Every courageous act of self-control, every yes to Jesus in the unimportant, in the little mundane moments of our day, binds the enemy. And those things might seem insignificant or little or unimportant, but they build momentum. They set us and our desires free from the influence of the enemy so that we can plunder his house. We can, with power and authority, usher in God's kingdom, his rule and his reign so that we can spend our lives on behalf of the marginalized and the vulnerable. We can fight for justice and we can see it come to pass. We can, with integrity and authority, speak hope into the most broken circumstances and we can see those caught in heartache and pain and chaos find life in Jesus. Every time we act on behalf of the other, every time we stand opposed to the hopelessness and the greed and the injustice and the oppression of the world around us, every time we welcome the stranger and receive the alien, every time we befriend the isolated and love the the seemingly unlovable, every time we tell the truth in the face of lies and choose courage, when all around us cower in fear, we are plundering the strong man's house. We are stepping into the mission of Jesus in restoring the world to the way it was designed and made to be. What would it look like to bind the enemy in your life this week? To resist his pull away from God's way? What would it look like for you to go on a raiding mission tomorrow and plunder his house? To speak words of life and hope and truth to a colleague. To comfort a grieving friend in the midst of sorrow and despair. To pay the cost so that someone caught in the bondage of poverty or addiction might get free. What would it look like in your life? 
There's a, a thousand, ten thousand creative ways that we can plunder his house, that we can partner with Jesus in seeing his kingdom come. But they all start with being at Jesus' feet, in his family, recognizing who he is and what he's come to do and choosing how we'll respond. So how are you going to respond this time? It's Mark's question that he leaves us with again and again and again. If you're tired of it already, there's a lot more to come. What is it that the Holy Spirit is inviting you to do in response today? Let me pray for us as we close. Holy Spirit, would you stir our hearts? Would you drive the truth of your word deep into our lives? And for each one of us, would you uniquely call us to follow you this week? Would you give us power and courage to resist the enemy, to bind him afresh? And would you call us on mission to plunder his house? to see the captive set free, to see hope released in a broken world. Would you excite us? Would you set a fire and a passion in us to see your kingdom come? Come, Lord Jesus, and have your way. Amen. Amen, guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. God bless. Thanks for listening to this message. For all the latest information about what's happening in the life of our church, or if you have any questions or comments, head over to BelfastCityVineyard.com.